and welcome to Security by the Book, a monthly podcast series from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on National Security, Technology, and Law. In this episode, Task Force Chair and Hoover Senior Fellow Jack Goldsmith interviews author David Priest on his new book, The President's Book of Secrets. It was recorded on October 13th, 2016. We're very pleased tonight to have David Priest, who is the author of a book called The President's Book of Secrets. The book is ostensibly about um, the history of the presidential daily brief briefing, which is the Book of Secrets, but it's actually about much more than that. It's about really about the history of intelligence and intelligence organization since World War II, uh, about how presidents deal with their intelligence um, organizations, about how they organize their intelligence apparatus. But the, the vehicle for telling the story and the focus of the story is on the, uh, the so-called PDB. Um, David refers to the, to the PDB as the most tightly guarded publication on the face of the earth. Uh, it's basically a CIA publication almost daily. He's going to describe it in more detail in a second. Uh, it also may have the smallest intended circulation of any publication. Depend uh, three to twenty people, depending on the president and the organization. So, uh, David, thank you so much. Why don't you just start us off by telling us in detail and as much as you want about the PDB and how it got going? Sure. Thank you for coming. Sure. Thank you. The president's daily brief has been around for a long time, decades, but it has changed in form. And some of our discussion tonight will probably be about those changes in form over the years. But fundamentally, it is the one focal point for all of the intelligence community to get classified analysis of the world's most pressing daily issues to the President of the United States. As such, it can include information from the CIA's spies, the NSA's listening posts, information from satellites, and it contains the best insight and expertise from the intelligence community's network of analysts to, to get the President what he needs to know and not what he does not need to know on a daily basis anywhere from a few pages to, in some cases, dozens of pages, but with a clear focus on the president. And that's the unique thing about it. It is tailored for an individual and for each individual that is in the White House. The information in the president's daily brief can be whatever the president wants it to be, and that has varied over the years as well. In most cases, it includes top secret information, compartmented information, information that doesn't make it into any other publication regularly beyond that tight circle. But it can also include raw operational information, that is, the reports directly from the spies or from the listening posts. As such, it is very tightly guarded. It is something that only a few people get to see, and that does vary across administrations as well. Right. So I forgot to mention that David himself was a CIA intelligence officer, and he actually briefed the PDB to, uh, on a regular basis for at least a year to the, um, to the Attorney General and the Director of, of the FBI. Um, so. Can you tell us how it came about? I mean, it actually had a lot of names before it was called the PDB. It started, it kind of got going, I guess, in the Truman administration. It used to be called the Current Intelligence Bulletin, the President's Intelligence Checklist, the Current Intelligence Review. And then, in of all places, it was the Eisen, the um, Johnson administration where it became, took its current name. Yeah, so that's right. Can you tell us something about yeah. wh wh where it came from? Yeah, most presidents in our history never had anything like this. We didn't have an intelligence apparatus as such until World War II. And even after that, there wasn't anything focused directly on the person of the president, tailored for the personality of the president. Uh, that changed with John F. Kennedy. And he started getting a product called the President's Intelligence Checklist, awkwardly acronymized to the pickle. 
And CIA produced that with a mind towards John F. Kennedy. They wanted something that would work for him. So they gave him something he could fold, put in his pocket, and pull it out during the day whenever he wanted to, because he couldn't sit still for long meetings. But that didn't work for Lyndon Johnson. It wasn't his kind of product. So the CIA did what government bureaucracies are great at. They simply reformat what they're already doing, retitle it, and pretend like it's something brand new. And so they gave it to Lyndon Johnson, called it the President's Daily Brief. It had a different shape. Yeah, it was actually a full-size document uh, because he did not want to fold it, put it in his pocket, and carry it around with him. In fact, there's a great photo I include in the book of Johnson sitting and reading the PDB with his wife and a grandchild. Made me wonder about the clearances there. Uh, but he's sitting in his robe reading it. He just chose to sit down at breakfast and read his book. So yeah, it did change for Lyndon Johnson. Started being called the President's Daily Brief, and that name has stuck. It's changed in form over the years, but it is still called the PDB. So um, you say at the beginning that the PDB itself is interesting and its contents are interesting, but what's really interesting is what the PDB tells us about the presidents and the way they organize intelligence. And you just right. gave two examples about how different Johnson and Kennedy were. I was really struck by a couple of things in the book. First of all, um, it, it, I was surprised, maybe I shouldn't have been, by how much the CIA wants to be relevant. I mean, I just assume in modern times that the CIA's relevance is secure, but you make the point that over the years, different presidents had different attitudes toward the agency. Can you tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll talk about the different forms that, yeah. that it took? It helps to realize what the CIA is, is there for. And now, of course, the President's Daily Brief is controlled by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, but the Central Intelligence Agency still feeds a lot of the President's Daily Brief. Uh, the, CIA's we'll only, yeah, the CIA's only real missions are intelligence collection, intelligence analysis, and covert action. And the intelligence collection is there primarily to feed the analysis and also the covert action. So the CIA's existence is wrapped around producing something for top policymakers. Other top policymakers have analytic shops of their own. State Department, Department of Energy, Department of Treasury, DOD certainly, have plenty of intelligence operations to help feed information relevant to those senior customers. Uh, the CIA is different. The CIA is independent from those bureaucracies, and therefore its main constituent is the president. And to the extent over time in the history of this that the president hasn't been giving a lot of love to the CIA and its flagship product, the PDB, people at the CIA have not liked this. And they've bent over backwards to try to find ways to cater to that president to make sure that this product and the briefing services often provided with it are appreciated by that first customer. So the polar extremes in the book seem to me to be Richard Nixon, right. who on one extreme just hated the CIA and tried to shut them out. Then in the other extreme, George Herbert Walker Bush, who was a former director. Right. Would you say that that defines the polls pretty well? That's about as far as it goes. Yeah. Uh, Richard Nixon took, took no love to the CIA in general, but certainly dismissed the analysis. Uh, one of the best parts of the book I discovered is during the transition when the current presidents traditionally provide the PDB to the president's elect to start reading it and getting up on national security issues. They were sending it to Nixon's transition office in New York, delivered in these envelopes every day so he could look at them. At the end of the transition period, they got all the envelopes back unopened. It appeared he hadn't even looked at the President's Daily Brief during the transition. So that's one extreme. During the administration, it didn't appear to get much better. Never any direct feedback yeah, from him. No direct feedback, and you right. tell the story that basically Kissinger controlled everything. And he did. He insists that Nixon read it, but not too many people remember seeing that. Anecdotal evidence suggests that Nixon did read it, but it's limited. It's limited because he didn't comment on it in his memoirs. He didn't leave any other documentation about it. But given his 
I won't say paranoia, I'll say extreme paranoia. <laughs> it would surprise me as a man who checked up on everybody and everything that he wouldn't have this objective check on Dr. Kissinger himself. He used Kissinger as a screen on many other people, but as the tapes have come out and we've started to get even more into Nixon's mind, we've seen he didn't even trust Henry Kissinger. So he would probably use something like this as a check on the information he was getting from his national security advisor. Now that's one extreme. The other extreme you mentioned is George H.W. Bush. I mean, here's a man who'd been director of central intelligence himself. He'd been vice president for eight years by the time he was president. So it wasn't a big surprise that he invited not only the president's daily brief in every day and read it avidly, he took a daily briefer for the entire length of his term. Only Gerald Ford had done it at all before, and that was just for one year. Bush 41 did it for his entire term and really had a great relationship with the briefers and with the agency overall. Another thing that comes out, and you alluded to this with Kennedy, was how the personalities of the president really mattered. So Kennedy couldn't sit still, and so they had to manage the project for him. You talked about um, Woolsey had a famously poor relationship with Bill Clinton. I hadn't, didn't realize, I knew that Clinton was tardy and couldn't keep a schedule, but it was really debilitating for people. People couldn't get in to see them because he couldn't keep a schedule. Absolutely. Uh, Let me correct one thing. Oh, sorry, uh, some of you know Jim Woolsey, and he's uh, very fond of saying he did not have a bad relationship with President Clinton. He had no relationship at all exactly. with him. That's right. Fa famously uh, um, underexplored relationship. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was also surprised, there's so many things about this great book that were surprising to me. Um, one was, there's a real question, I, I want us to spend some time on this. There was a real question, there's a real question about what is the optimal form mm -hmm. of intelligence for the lead intelligence agency to give to the president. Yeah. And you sort of tell a story that every president that comes in didn't like what the predecessor was doing. Some thought there was too much detail, some thought it was too long, some thought there was too much context, some thought there was not enough, some thought there was too much analysis and opinion, some thought not enough. Yeah. And so it really raises the question, so maybe you could comment on that, but also the broader question of you know, what is the optimal method of informing the president? Is it really just a presidential judgment? Well, that's what it comes down to. But are some, do some forms do you think work better than others? Yeah, we'll start with some of those changes between administrations. Each president decides how the PDB is going to come in. It is the president's book. And some presidents have chosen slightly different formats. Jimmy Carter changed the format from Gerald Ford's book to his by simply expanding the margins, increasing the amount of white space, because Jimmy Carter was a writer, and he liked to write comments into the book. As he was reading, he would write, tasking out questions, making notations, questions to himself he would put in there. So that's a very minor change. A uh, more fundamental change would be the content itself. Do you want long analytic pieces or short analytic pieces? And those have changed over time. President George H.W. Bush received both. He had snowflakes, or small little one or two liners that some people remember well, and then longer analytic pieces so he could get a more in-depth issue into the PDB. So that's on, in terms of the format, there have been changes like that. In terms of what's ideal, I hear a lot of speculation on this, that this is the right way to get information to the president. And I'm always skeptical of that, because nobody gets to the Oval Office without knowing pretty well what their most effective means of receiving information and interpreting information is. So if somebody were to come along and say, Mr. President or Mrs. President, you should receive it this way because that is the best way of doing it, uh, I would expect some pushback because they probably know better whether they're a reader or whether they're a listener, whether they like visuals or whether they like text. Somebody imposing something on them doesn't make much sense. All that said, if all things are equal, right. there is a distinct virtue to having a briefer in the room rather than just reading the book. If you read the book, it's very well prepared. It's very well edited. It's a lot of care goes into every word that is put in there. 
but it's not telling the whole story. It's not telling what was left on the cutting room floor. What are some of the alternatives that were explored that just couldn't fit in the piece? What's the depth of the sourcing behind this that isn't conveyed in the text, but can give the president a real sense of how solid is this information? How much of it is speculative, informed speculation, but still speculative? That comes out best with a briefer in the room. I was there, I did it, I know the kinds of things that can come up that otherwise would never have helped inform the policymaker. You quote uh, Robert Gates as saying he thought that was the most important mm -hmm. uh, function of this, was the, the relationship between the, the, the briefer and the president, because the, then the agency could know what mm -hmm. the president's interested in, could fill in some things he was misinformed about. But as you also make clear, some presidents don't take a brief. I right. think the President Obama, I think, does not. He, he likes to read it himself. He, he likes to read it himself. And but some of the presidents yeah. just read it. Which I can't remember yeah. which president just read it on his own and didn't. Um, yeah. Was there one president who just read it on his own and didn't take a brief? Well, several read it yeah. and did not take a CIA or an intelligence. Right. But they briefer, got it through. But the they national got it through the National Security, security Advisor. You talk about those, right? Absolutely. Uh, that includes people like Jimmy Carter. Uh, oddly enough, Jimmy Carter and Richard Nixon very similar in one way, which is they relied on the National Security Advisor to be a funnel of information to them. Almost every president has had intense discussions about the president's daily brief with the National Security Advisor, who in turn had been briefed by the CIA. So it's one step removed from the president getting a briefing, but it's still getting that extra information somehow to the Oval Office. How much the National Security Advisor chooses to convey of that nuance to the president, well, that's the missing element. That's there. You don't know if everything is going to be communicated. And to be fair, most National Security Advisors or their deputies have not been intelligence officers themselves in their previous lives, uh, Bob Gates being the exception as a Deputy National Security Advisor for George H.W. Bush and himself a former senior intelligence official and analyst. But that does leave open a little matter of interpretation. and. Generally, with the amount of care that goes into every word in this analysis for the president, interpretation is a bad thing. If there's one person interpreting it who's very familiar with intelligence, very familiar with the material, that actually adds value. If somebody's interpreting it who doesn't understand the nuances behind the construction of this intelligence analysis, that could introduce uncertainty. And uncertainty is the last thing you want when it comes to some of the decisions that are talked about in the president's daily brief. But you said some of the most valuable aspects were the ana analytical aspects, and yep. analysis tends to involve interpretation. It seems those are sure. inevitable. So I, it seems yep. that there's inevitably going to be some interpretation involved, even if, mm -hmm. if, if you just go anything beyond brute facts, which themselves tend to involve. Absolutely. Interpretation, interpretation, especially of the policy implications, yes, that's going to happen. If there's a question of interpretation of what is the analyst trying to say here, right. what is their judgment, how confident are they in this judgment, about whether Soviet missiles are in Cuba, about whether China is involved in this insurrection, uh, that's a bad thing. The president won't always have a complete picture of what's going on around the world from this analysis. But if the president is actually uncertain about the assessment, then there's a real problem. And that's the issue that can come up without either a briefer in the room or without the text being relayed directly. So let's talk about the famous August 6, was it? August 6, 2001. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, PDB that was entitled, uh, with the famous title, Bin Laden Determined to Strike in U.S. Uh -huh. This was a month before 9-11. This was the event, this was the PDF that became very, PDF, PD, you PDB. You can find it in PDF online. Yeah. PDB, so that's, that's right. Yeah. The, the PDB that became so famous afterwards because it was supposedly the smoking gun right. showed that the president didn't take seriously enough the threat. Um, and I think I want to talk about this for a while because it actually changed, as you tell the story, it may, may have changed right. the relationship between 
the intelligence services and the president and maybe have politicized this document a little bit. Yep. So tell us, remind us about all of that, if you could, about what, yep. what the August 6th uh, paper said sure. and, and sure. take it from there. Yeah, as you'll see in the PDF of the PDB right. online, uh, it's just over one page long. It's a page of text with a few, few sections on the back talking about the intent of bin Laden because the president and the others around him had no shortage of information that summer about the capabilities of al-Qaeda. Uh, this piece was explicitly about what's his intent regarding the United States itself. And as such, its purpose was to lay out, here's what we think and here's why we think it. Bin Laden wants to strike in the U.S. Why do we think that? Well, because he said he wants to strike in the U.S. That's a good indicator, number one. Uh, the best predictor of people's behavior is what they say they're going to do. But we also had clandestine reporting. We also had reporting from other government services that were cooperative. We also had information from other terrorist groups that were hearing this. So you'll see all that li listed in that President's Daily Brief. Then, it, of course, it starts talking about, well, do we think he can do it? And that's where it gets interesting, because there is a citation to a report about an actual airplane attack. Uh, what's, what's funny about it is that's not 9-11, is the airplane attack that's being talked about, hijack an aircraft. Uh, that line in there refers to some re reporting that did not pan out as true, which was about the hijacking of an aircraft to free the blind sheikh who had been imprisoned after the first World Trade Center attack in 1993. That was so not the purpose of 9-11. They were not hijacking the planes to use as bargaining chips to free the blind sheikh. Uh, so it was a red herring. Oh, there wasn't there an earlier Clinton era one that, yeah. that did refer to? Yeah. These are the two, at least in the modern era, these are the only two PDBs that have gotten any attention because they're the only two anybody have seen. Yeah. Uh, they were released by the 9-11 Commission as part of the investigation. So tell us about the 98 one and then and continue. The 1998 piece for Bill Clinton, so this, this is going back three years in advance, uh, was actually a more detailed piece in some ways, talking about the plans of al-Qaeda to use aircraft in operations. Uh, again, it did not point to anything directly related to the 9-11 plot. There was no intelligence on that in that product. But it certainly gave the Clinton administration, which included, in terms of PDB readership, the president, the vice president, and at that point, about two dozen others. It certainly gave them a good picture of the fact that there's a real threat here from a different perspective than we might have thought before. Acting on one PDB, which is what the commissioners talked about and a lot of pundits go at, is how could you read this piece and not stop everything in the US government, uh, reform the FAA, start a transportation security initiative, and all of that. But you have to realize, every day, the president's daily brief alone can have eight or 10 pieces like this about various places around the world, and often various annexes and supplements to the piece. Then there are other intelligence products that are going to the level below that, feeding the president and everyone around him with dozens of tidbits of information, not to mention whatever the Situation Room is feeding him during the day, which can be hundreds of bits of information. Uh, to believe that there's one thing that's going to bring the entire government to a stop is pure fantasy. And I don't care whether that refers to the 1998 PDB for Bill Clinton or the August 6, 2001 PDB for George W. Bush. So after, so this became a big to-do, and you recount it well in the book before the 9-11 Commission, yeah. could they get access <laughs> to the PDB, especially this one? There was a bit of the typical congressional executive standoff. They finally reached a compromise. So explain that. Explain what ended up happening. But then, most interested in the kind of political dynamics that you think that gave rise to, and then, yep. and then I'll, we'll go from there. It was a different world then. The president's daily brief was so tightly held that the line was drawn that no one will ever see these president's daily briefs except for the president and outside the, the executive branch. Yeah, even within the executive branch, a very limited dissemination of this right. book. 
Uh, many analysts in the CIA working on the book don't see anything other than the material they put into it. And there's good reason for that. This is a vehicle for communication to the president that can convey the most sensitive information, unlike many other vehicles. So it made sense that out of executive privilege alone, but certainly out of the sensitivity of intelligence information, that the executive branch did not want this to be part of a public discussion. But there was a problem, and the problem was the sheer public relations weight of the 9-11 families. Right. Um, we've seen that even recently, up till now. But at the time, it was overwhelming. And the lawyers at the National Security Council and the politicians as well realized, we can't hold out against this. So they worked out a compromise whereby the commissioners could examine the president's daily briefs that were deemed relevant to the investigation. They could summarize them in notes. They could discuss them. And then they went through the process of getting a couple of them cleared to include in the 9-11 Commission report. This was groundbreaking at the time because nobody had seen current day PDBs. In fact, at that point, only a handful had ever been declassified back from the 1960s. Some of those were even declared to be inadvertently released. So it was quite a shock to see those out there. Of course, it's very different now because in the last two years, we've seen the declassification of virtually all of the presidential intelligence from the Kennedy administration, the Johnson administration, and then just a few months ago from the Nixon and Ford administrations. You can look those up online if you're curious about what the president was seeing in his top-level intelligence product for some of the key national security challenges in the late 60s and early 70s. You've got it all right in front of you. Unprecedented at that time. Right. So you, you, you quote John Bellinger to the effect, um, who, who was the, at the time the legal advisor to the National Security Council, to the effect that he worried that releasing this would politicize the relationship between, yeah. because it looked like, when, when that document is revealed and the 1998 document is revealed, it looks like th that suddenly there's the worry about who's responsible, who's covering whose bottom. Yeah. And then you quote, I have this great quote from Rahm Emanuel, who got really angry when uh, there, for a, um, a PDB that warned the president about basically homegrown terrorists, I think. Uh -huh. And he said, you're just trying to cover your ass. Right. And that, once these things are public, that political dynamic becomes yeah. a possibility. Can you talk about yeah, that? I was a little what, nervous. A, I was a little nervous about that quote because Rahm Emanuel never uses language like that. <laughs> <laughs> Can you yeah. talk about those dynamics? Are they real? I mean, is, is yeah. it, has it changed it's, the nature of the concern. relationship? It's a real concern. The, the thought among political circles at the time was that the resistance to publishing the PDBs and giving them to the commission was to protect President Bush because he must have been told something. And the, the funny thing is, sight unseen, the National Security Council told the 9-11 Commission we don't want you to see the PDBs you've requested. And there were many more of them from the Clinton administration than from the Bush administration that they wanted right. to cover this. So it was a decision based purely on the issue of executive privilege and based on covert advice to the president. That is, can the CIA and the intelligence community more largely now, do they have a protected channel which will not be second-guessed in a few years? Because if so, their concern as expressed to me was, what happens when an analyst is thinking not, how can I best inform the President of the United States today on this tough national security challenge to bring the intelligence analysis to bear so that they can make a decision under less uncertainty? Instead of thinking about that, what if the analyst is thinking, huh, how is this going to play in a few years when it's on Fox News, MSNBC, and CNN? To the extent that an analyst headspace is thinking about that, they're not serving the President as effectively. So it's a legitimate argument. And it's one that has some concern. I don't hear a lot of people now talking about that. I still think there's enough of a service mentality focused on the customer, the president, that analysts are more focused on getting the analysis right. But once in a while on a controversial topic, it's going to enter into an analyst's head. These are going to be exposed in a few years. And I don't want to look like an idiot. 
How does that affect analysis? Or the problem that happens on the other side with the Rahm Emanuel situation is the anal analyst can be playing it straight, right. and I imagine almost always does, yeah. but the president or his staff might think you're just covering your bottom because you're, uh -huh. you're telling the president about something he can't do anything about, and uh -huh. then it's going to look like he didn't act right. aggressively enough. So I think that there was a cost to exposing these things and uh -huh. kind of making them an object of public scrutiny. It's certainly a topic of conversation now that it wasn't, some of you remember, in the 1970s or 1980s, there wasn't a lot of daily punditry about, was the president briefed on this? Was the president told how bad the situation in Syria was? Was there something in the briefing about Russia hacking? Uh, that kind of thing is a daily occurrence now, and that was unheard of back yeah. then. So my next question is about why the CIA uh, is in charge of this. It, it made sense when the, uh, the, the director of the CIA was also the director of Central Intelligence. Right. Um, but you pointed out that maybe one problem with the, the August 2001 account of bin Laden was the FBI piece of it was not fully accounted for. Um, and you point, and then after the DNI, ODNI, it comes into existence. Right. I guess it's nominally in charge right. of, of the, uh, the PDB, but it's still in the, in the CIA shop. So is that the best? Is that the yep. best mechanism? Shouldn't it be done at the DNI level in a real way to, to get sort of all the And then you also talked about with the underwear bomber case in December of 2009, I think it was, uh, NCTC wasn't fully integrated into the, the PDB process. Um, so how should that be done and are we in the right place on that? Yeah, I would say it's more than nominal control of the PDB by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Okay. Uh, true that the printing of the PDB and the production is still done in CIA spaces. Uh, true that the vast majority of the product is produced by CIA analysts. Uh, well, that's a function of where are the all-source analysts mm -hmm. in the intel community mm -hmm. uh, more than anything else, as well as some institutional history, some comfort among the people at CIA with working on this document. So that, that's a big part of it. But it is a DNI product. The, the DNI controls it. The DNI controls the briefers. The DNI is in charge of the book on a very uh, real level. In terms of the the way that that's changed things, I would suggest not that very much. Uh, and I'll take the NCTC example that you brought up. Uh, from its inception, pe people in the NCTC, the National Counterterrorism Center, were contributing to the PDB, writing pieces for it. The real tension was there already was a counterterrorism center. It just didn't have that N before it. Uh, it was the CIA's counterterrorism center, which had been the community counterterrorism center before NCTC was created. With no kidding, world-class analysts on terrorism working in two institutions, both wanting to write for the president, of course there's going to be friction of who has ownership on this. Uh, but as some people said for the book, uh, we have to realize we've had analysts in the military intelligence agencies and at CIA working on military intelligence for years, and we haven't blown up the book over it. So why is this such a, a major issue? Can't we all just get along? <laughs> Mechanisms were worked out. It's a government. Processes were established to make sure that this was happening. Um, and in fact, later on, they found that a separate product at the National Counterterrorism Center called the National Terrorism Bulletin, or NTB, became a great vehicle for communicating high-level terrorist information from those analysts. So in fact, we have multiple products side-by-side side going to multiple customers. Still, the President's Daily Brief is the pinnacle. It is the President's book and the only one that is focused specifically on the President and then on others the President deems to receive it. But a lot of people can contribute to it over a long enough period of time. And you think that the organizations are now in place where the intelligence community as a whole is contributing to it, as yes. opposed to being CIA-dominated? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so I was amazed in the book by the sheer 
number of hours and senior leadership hours uh -huh. they go into producing this daily newspaper for three to 20 people. Um, and you know, Stan Turner would edit it every night when he was the CIA director. He has a lot of very heavy, uh -huh. high-level input, even if it's not at that level. It takes up a lot of very valuable time. Uh -huh. You quote someone, and then there's a question of whether it's worth it. And you quote someone near the end of the book saying that, wondering whether the PDB has become a hugely expensive irrelevance. And then, and I thought this before you gave this quote, I think this is a quote from someone, and maybe it's your analysis, because of its, no, I think it's, you're quoting someone, because of its importance, the PDB has started to define us. Uh -huh. Not only is it the most expensive periodical in the world, but it's gotten too expensive. We can't afford to obsess about, the way, about, about it the way we do. It's eating management time way more than analyst time. A bunch of senior managers spend a lot of time on the book. That's what makes the PDB so expensive, more expensive than we can afford. And then, because we produce routinely better quality than we let ourselves believe. Uh -huh. Can you explain that and where you come down on that issue? Yeah, anyone who has ever been involved in editing knows that it is almost impossible to resist the urge to make changes. Therefore, you have an experienced intelligence officer, and I don't care who she is or who he is, who is at the top of the intelligence bureaucracy, who takes a look at this product before it goes downtown, says, you know, I, I would have phrased that a little differently. I think I can sharpen that language. Um, if that have, happens at many levels, you've got a whole lot of eyes on a product, and each step might marginally improve the product. Uh, but how much? And is it worth the amount of time that goes into it? Because there is a real cost. If you're spending even an hour or two a day as a senior manager on this book going to the president, that's an hour or two you're not spending on developing managers underneath you, doing other kinds of outreach within and without the community. So there's a real cost associated with it. I can make a good argument either way. I can make an argument that you should have analysts writing these pieces because they're closest to the intelligence. They know the material the best. And maybe have one or two people look at it to make sure it's not too screwed up and then get it to the president. Um, that works. But of course, you increase the risk of, I'll call them errors. Not necessarily errors in analysis, but even something as simple as typos. But typos do get through. Ronald Reagan, who is not considered much of a reader, he caught typos in the PDB. Uh, and that was after several layers of review. Go to the other side. If there is, let's pause it, if there is marginal improvement with every layer of review, and this is a product going to the President of the United States, and the President of the United States, as has happened through most of its history, the President of the United States makes major decisions right after reading the PDB based on the analysis in it, or at least informed thereby, you can't put enough attention on this. Uh, lives are at stake. Fleets get moved because of a piece in the PDB. Terrorists are taken out based on pieces in the president's daily brief. I can understand the instinct as a senior manager to say, my job is to be the last eyes on this before it gets to the president. Therefore, you had a director of central intelligence, uh, soon after that, just a director of CIA, Porter Goss, who acknowledged he spent hours a day focused on the president's daily brief which is ridiculous if you think about it, given the huge infrastructure under him to do only that. But he felt that was his primary job, to make sure the president got the best intelligence possible every single day. And as such, he was going to put the time into it. So two more questions. The second to last question is, you make the point at the end that the PDB is only as good as the underlying intelligence. And there you give many examples where they get it right. Yeah. 67 war, for example. Some examples where they get it wrong. The 73 war, they, yeah. under, uh, they didn't catch that one at all, and there are other examples cutting in both directions. I mean, is that the, is that the, the main story that, that it, it, but 
that really these, this newspaper is only as good as the underlying intelligence, or is there something else that it adds that by selecting what's important for the president? Yeah. There, there are two sides to that. On some issues, and I can say this having seen it as a briefer, I can say this looking at the history of the declassified documents and talking with people who have seen it, including all the living ex-presidents and vice presidents that I got uh, information from for the book. There are some days where the book has such stunning insight that's based on classified sources that you don't get anywhere else. That today, the president might be reading something on Syria, North Korea, or Russia that is fundamentally different than what's in the press and gives a much better picture of what's going on. Some days, that stunning insight is on issues where there isn't that kind of exquisite collection. It might be on something where it's mostly open reporting. It's from press reporting or academic studies or products from the Hoover Institution. And the analysts are simply putting enough creativity and insight on it that it adds value for the president. And then there were days when I would open up the book and I would look at it and I would say, that's it? That's the best we've got? And it could be on either of those topics. Generally, there's a correlation between the value added from the classified sources, that clandestine information that isn't available anywhere else. So generally, that would be true. But I saw it on both sides. I saw days when what was in here completely and totally justified the cost of the president's daily brief for the term because it was that good on one page on one day. Then there were some days where I just face palmed and I thought, this is what the president is seeing. How are we going to get our budget next year? So you actually raised the last question I wanted to ask, but you reminded me of another question, so I have two more. Sorry. So you alluded yeah. to the fact that every president and vice president living who yeah. was a recipient of this you, you spoke to, which yeah. is amazing, almost every living uh, CIA director right. and deputy director and most consumers of the product. Right. That's really, I can't think of any other book well, uh, about it, which that's true. Can you, yeah. that's an amazing thing. Can you tell us how that happened and what it was like? And well, frankly, is that reflective, is that the reflective yeah. of this club, this, this PDB club? Uh, no, frankly, it's a disappointment because the dead ones weren't talking. So <laughs> I had nothing, I had nothing from them. But there were a lot of living ones. Uh, well, there, there, there's a reason for it. And part of it is due to the other people who saw the president's daily brief. Because when I started interviewing, I didn't first go to President Clinton and say, you know, let's chat. Uh, I went to other people who sure. had worked on the book over the years and, and built up a base of information and also built up a base of people who could say to the national security advisor or the vice president from that administration, uh, yeah, he has no ax to grind. Um, he's trying to tell the true history. And, and that is the case here. This isn't a polemic. Uh, this isn't an Not attack on anyone in particular. It's a no, kidding, no kidding history. Uh, which has its own downsides in terms of not taking enough of a stand on certain issues, but it's out there. Um, eventually you get that snowball effect where enough people in the administration have contributed to the book that you can go to the holdouts and say, hi, I'm, I'm writing this book. It involves the President's Daily Brief. You were a recipient of it. I've heard lots of interesting things about the book and about the way you read it from lots of other people. Um, would, would you like me to rely on the way they've talked about you or would you like to contribute? Uh, and eventually most of them would like to have their own word in it. Uh, when it gets up to everyone in the administration but the President who saw the PDB contributing to the book, I think most of them agreed that this would be valuable. But it's also a credit to the people who produced the PDB during those administrations. Because if they saw no value in this book, they would have said, why bother? It wasn't important enough to me for four years or for eight years. Why should I give you even an hour of my time? Uh, nobody did that. To a person, they all said, even the ones who were critical and, and didn't think oh, it was very valuable, they still thought it was valuable. I would say especially the ones that were critical. Yeah. In some key ways, both President Clinton and right. both Presidents Bush said the, the PDB could have been better. It could have served me in better ways. And then in the next sentence, they said how vitally important it was for, in one case, case you'll read about in the Clinton administration, for preventing a nuclear war. Um, it doesn't get much better than that. 
even if it still could be better. Yeah. So my last question is, to the extent you can talk about it, how much did you worry at the outset about clearance issues, yeah. publication issues, and how much of a problem was that? I mean, nothing obviously jumped out to me. I mean, I'm, and the yeah. substantive events you talked about mm -hmm. um, were, were known events for the most part. Was this a problem, or did you just manage it up front? Well, I'm glad you're having Christopher Moran in here to talk about uh, the, what is it, Company Confessions, yeah. or Company Confidential. Two books from now, yeah. it's basically a history of CIA memoirs. Yeah, yeah I think you want to hear that one. Uh, that, that's a good one, about the publication review process. He focuses more on memoirs. Right. Uh, this book is not a memoir. You won't find the word I in it unless it's somebody else's quote. It's, it's the story in the words of the presidents and the others who received the book or produced it. In terms of the clearance process for it, of course, as a former CIA officer, having signed an agreement for the rest of my life and perhaps beyond, uh, everything that I think has to go through them to make sure it's not classified, not for editing, uh, it had to be submitted. And as you can imagine, it took some time, uh, some months, many months, because they had to check every word to make sure it wasn't classified. Uh, this is why something that you'll see in it, for those of you who like this kind of thing, you're welcome. For those of you who don't, I'm sorry. You'll find 100 pages of endnotes. Uh, in some cases, multiple endnotes for each sentence to show where every bit of information came from. Part of that's because when I read a book like this and I see President Clinton said this, I want to know where it came from. So I want to know if the author talked to the president or whether it came through third hand. But it was also for the publication review process. By showing them, oh, you think this is really sensitive? It's what the DNI himself said publicly and put on the website. So that's probably okay. Or you want to protect what the president thinks about the PDB? Um, it's what the president himself told me. That's probably a good measure that it's okay. Doesn't mean they have to deem it unclassified, but there were no redactions of substance in anything I submitted to them. The only redactions were things about tangents of tangents, about where a CIA officer from the 1950s had served overseas, stuff that was not essential to the book. It's a truly great book. I highly recommend it. It's not, as I said at the beginning, it's not just about the PDB. It's about the modern history of American national security, mm -hmm. the American presidency, and how the presidency organizes its national security and its intelligence organizations. David, it's a great book. Thanks for doing Thanks, this. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.